good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And if you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be some underneath the chair in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles, and you can find this passage on page 226 of the pew Bible. And if you do not own a Bible for yourself, please see this. That Bible in your hand is our gift to you, so please take that home with you. We um, believe that the local church is the pillar and buttress of truth, and we stand upon the Word of God solely for that truth. And so we want to encourage everyone to, to dig into God's Word. If you remember, if you were with us last Lord's Day, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 17, a very uh, familiar passage to most, the story of David and Goliath. And I just, by way of reminder, uh, want to remind us of how it ended. And so after David uh, slew the giant Goliath, he uh, was brought into King Saul's presence by the commander of the army, Abner, while still holding the head of Goliath and had some uh, had a conversation with King Saul, and Saul wanted to know whose family this young man belongs to. And that's where we find ourselves uh, as we enter into chapter 18. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of, of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, 
He stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was getting given to Adriel, the Maholophite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be now my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ear of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Hear the word of the Lord. In this passage, we see that the Lord's hand is upon his anointed servant. The Lord's anointed in this chapter, David, is received by some and resisted by one in particular. And so we want to work through this passage and see, as you probably have noticed in your bulletin, the title, The Divided House. And so we see Saul, the king of Israel, and The way in which people respond to the Lord's anointed is something that we should be mindful of. There is love and there is hate. First, I want us to look for a moment at Jonathan's love. So this is is Saul's son, really the prince of, of Israel, the one who, if all things were to play out correctly, would be the heir to the throne But we know that the Lord has already said that it will be taken from Saul and given to his anointed, King David, to come. But I want us to think for a moment, because it really is quite quite amazing 
how Jonathan responds to this young giant slayer. Now, David in this situation has much to gain. Everything is kind of opening up in his world. He has just been the one who who defeated Goliath, and he is returning to Israel with, with much fame growing at this point. Jonathan had much to lose. Part of the natural disposition of sinners like all of us, outside of the work of Christ in our lives, is to be cautious and try to be self-protective when things in our life may be going towards someone else. Our, our default is to protect ourselves, to kind of make sure that we're okay and whoever's trying to impede on that would be pushed away. We're, we, we're, we're cautious by that natural default. And Jonathan seems to have every reason to, to criticize, to undermine this young man, making things even possibly difficult for David, maybe turning a cold shoulder to David or leading him astray. Lots of different opportunities. If, if Jonathan was just functioning out of the flesh, this young man who is coming to fame, where once he was the one put on display as a man of faith who led God's people into battle. There's several reasons why this is a very unlikely response that we read from someone in Jonathan's position. He was the one in line. He was the one that was, was, was in a leadership role, and we watch how he responds to David. More to note, Jonathan at this point was quite a bit older than David. They came from different tribes and backgrounds and many different past experiences. It would be understandable for there to be resentment and jealousy on behalf of Jonathan as he looks at this young man coming in and being praised by the people. Yet, his attitude towards David was completely different than what many would expect when reading a story like this. So instead of resenting David, he loved David as his own soul. Instead of standing indifferent from the young giant slaver, his slayer, his soul was knit to the soul of David, we read at the beginning of our, our passage. If you're familiar with Jonathan's relationship with David, um, I, I think it's important for us to, to note the familial love that was put on display here. When it says that they were, they were one in spirit, or um, as the text reads, their, their soul was, was knit together. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We, we read that same kind of description in Genesis chapter 44 when uh, Jacob is described uh, as his love for his son Benjamin is described in Genesis chapter 44. It was a close bond, a, a knitting together with that boy's life that was described of Jacob and his son. That's a helpful way to understand, and the reason why I'm, I'm kind of pushing on this is because if you read modern scholarship, it is very unfortunate that this intimacy that Jonathan and David had, this friendship that, that almost needs in our modern minds to be categorized or tempted to be put in the category of some kind of homosexual relationship, 
We want to just put that to death because that's not even close to what is happening here. This is a familial love. That same description that Jacob had for his son, Benjamin, this is this older Jonathan wanting his soul to be knitted with this young man. And there was a, and we can relate to this, there is a kindred spirit that happens that we praise God for when you meet a brother or sister in Christ that stand on the same biblical convictions, right? The doctrine that we see come from Scripture that is sound and right, when you're both affirming that and you come into contact with one another, there is that kindred spirit that happens, and you could just amplify that in this setting where their lives were forever changed with this beautiful, God-centered friendship that they experienced. When we look at Jonathan's attitude, I pray that it, should, that it would inspire us. His response to David, I want us to consider the love that he had. The love that he expresses for David um, is, is helpful in us understanding what true biblical love looks like. Love, in its active sense, is a verb. It is something that we do or bestow upon another. If I say with my mouth, I love you, but my actions do not reflect that, well, then you can question really my words. But we see from Jonathan's action that there was true love for David. Jonathan's love for David sets an example that we can follow as we seek to love others. And so just briefly, let's just think about this. Jonathan's love was a love that could rejoice in someone else's victories or achievements. It's a rejoicing love. Many of us struggle with pride so much that we can't even give another person a compliment or build them up because somehow we feel like that's like demoting us or making less of us when in reality, this love that's being described that Jonathan has for David is one that gladly rejoices in what David has, has accomplished through the power of God. And then we also see that there is this description of his love that gives. I mean, Jonathan is taking off his robe, his, his weaponry, and giving, giving David all that he has on his back, so to speak. And so we see this rejoicing love and this love that just almost recklessly abandonment, just gives. And there's much being said here in the giving of all that Jonathan has, stripping it off of himself and placing it upon David. And also the covenant that he makes with David that in later chapters will have more opportunities, Lord willing, to unpack more. We can't quite dig into it as, as deep as I would like to at this moment, but I do want to read from Walter Chantry when he writes about Jonathan's covenant love with David, it's really helpful. The crown prince of Israel made a covenant with the shepherd. He gave his clothing and weapons to David as symbols of his devoted companionship. One day, David would even express agreement with God's will that David should have the crown intended for him. It was a selfless, sacrificial, loyal love for David that would endure until Jonathan's death. Mutual fidelity was pledged that very day, and it proved to be the most satisfying fellowship to both men for a lifetime. 
one of the lessons that we see in this beginning description of Jonathan's love for David is that envy, resentment, and hatred spring from worldly and selfish priorities. Those sins, envy, resentment, hatred, they spring from worldly and selfish priorities. Whereas godly love springs from a concern about something much bigger. So in a sense, if you want to learn and glean from Jonathan, there is in a very real way him moving his eyes away from like navel gazing, looking at his own self, and it's pointed towards something bigger, namely the kingdom of God. We've seen in his actions in previous chapters, he is, he is living by faith as he is seeking to live for someone else, God and his kingdom. And so when he looks at David, he is seeing that, that God's hand is upon this man, and I want to align myself with what God is up to instead of self-preservation, always seeking what's best for me. So godly love is springing from a concern for the kingdom of God. Rather than envying the gifts and callings of, callings of others, Jonathan rejoices in other people's gifts, and he graciously gives. Now, thinking for a moment about this, how do we react when someone comes along who exceeds us in ability, in gifting, or even faith? How do you react when, when that happens in your own life? I was really uh, moved by this example um, from a preacher, F.B. Uh, Mayer, and his interactions with G. Campbell Morgan. So both preachers in London, some would say prominent preachers in London, and something was, was beginning to happen in F.B. Meyer's life. As he was watching and observing the ministry of G. Campbell Morgan, he realized that something was starting to happen in his heart, and he wanted to address it. His church was well attended, but Morgan's church overflowed. Mayer and Morgan often preached together at conferences, but those who listened eagerly to Morgan's brilliant sermons a lot of times would not even stay around to listen to F.B. Meyer preach. A godly pastor, he was disturbed to realize the envy and resentment brewing in his heart for his colleague. And he noted that he had gotten into the habit of pointing out Morgan's flaws and mistakes while minimizing his gifts and achievements. In response, Meyer determined that he would start praying for God's blessing on the ministry of Campbell Morgan, reasoning that he could not continue to envy a man for whose blessing he prayed for. So soon, Mayer could, could be heard rejoicing in Morgan's preaching. Things like, my, did you hear Campbell Morgan's pre preach today? He would tell many people, not only did uh, Meyer's prayer enable him to, to love his colleague with the gift of rejoicing, but in, in answer to his prayers, God so overflowed Morgan's church 
that many of the people in London had no other choice but then, then to start attending Myers Church. And it was just amazing, this beautiful display of identifying in his heart and life that resentment, that envy, and seeking to put that sin to death, not wanting to be like that towards his brother, but wanting to have the, the love that Jonathan expressed, one that would be happy to rejoice in the achievements of another brother, and one that would be happy to give. And his, his way of giving was active prayer, interceding for this brother and rejoicing when God was blessing his ministry. Think from David's perspective just for a moment. What an encouragement it must have been in his life for an older man of faith who without a doubt David and all of his brothers heard stories of Jonathan and looked up to Jonathan. This was the man who was rejoicing in David's victory. What an encouragement. And I, I want to encourage us, challenge us to think of others that we could bless by just simply speaking a word of encouragement. When you identify in their life evidences of God's grace, God is obviously doing something, putting, putting pride to death and actually moving towards them and speaking words of encouragement. What would that do to our body as as Pastor Andrew prayed for unity within the body, if we would take those steps towards brothers and sisters and rejoice in the gifts that God has given them and express our love by, by giving to them. William Blakey writes this about Jonathan's trust in the Lord to be able to no longer be bound by the chains of selfishness and pride he writes this, Is there anything so beautiful as a beautiful heart? After well nigh 3,000 years, we are still thrilled by the noble character of Jonathan. And well were it for every young man that he shared in some degree Jonathan's high nobility. Self-seekers and self-pleasers should look at Jonathan and be ashamed. I definitely needed to hear that word this last week. So first we saw an amazing example of the Lord's anointed being loved and adored by Jonathan. We also see in the chapter that the people love David. As he goes in and as he goes out and comes in, the people's love for him grow. But we also see the Lord's anointed was resisted. The Lord's anointed was, was hated. And so we want to look at how Saul was, was quite the opposite in his response to David. In verses 1 through 6 of our passage, we see that at first Saul would have received much praise from the people because of the decision that he made in placing David over his army. There was a lot of good that, that Saul was receiving because of God's blessing upon David, but he was so blind to, to that. He was so self-consumed that he, he wasn't even able to see that. He wasn't able to see that wherever Saul sent him, the Lord blessed it, and that was for everyone's good, God's glory and their, their good. 
And what, what it really exposes is that David, or Saul did not really, really love him, did not really love the Lord's anointed. One commentator looks at Saul and how he, he acts in this chapter in particular and really connects him to, this is a, a, a perfect description of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. If you remember when, when the son finally, after wasting away his inheritance and, and hitting rock bottom, just longs just just even be the servant of his dad's household. If he could just even be one of the servants, that would be so much better than what he has just experienced, living in sin and, and the festering and, and all that happened in his time away. And you remember the father gladly runs after him and embraces the son, brings him back, throws a party. My son is alive. He's returned. And if you remember, you've got the older brother who has experienced the blessing of, of God's hand the whole time as he stayed in and around his father's household, and he just cannot, he cannot get over what is happening to his younger brother. And we see Saul functioning that same way. David was experiencing success. He's being built up and praised, and Saul cannot get over the jealousy and the anger that is growing in his heart. To make matters worse, we read this description of the women singing this song, and most of us are familiar with, with this song that was sung, but it really, I mean, it was an arrow or a dagger in the heart of Saul. The women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And you can just imagine Satan so very happy that this seed is planted that just grows it's just building up anger inside of this man's heart. And really, jealousy and anger was the beginning point for Saul, and it really grew into the sin of suspicion. I don't know if you've ever thought about that category of sin before, but to be very suspicious of others, it, it, is, it, it is evil and it is sinful, the way in which we see this play out in Saul's life. And it begins with jealousy, and anger that is not dealt with in one's heart. Verse 9, it says, And Saul eyed David from that day on. That is, he tirelessly watched and observed everything that David did and where his loyalties really lie. It consumed Saul. He wanted to know what was going on in David's life. He probably asked himself questions like, Whose side is this guy on? It looks like he's after my position, my job. He's stealing the affections of the people. And here's the question, is he trying to take over my kingdom? All of these things going on in his heart and his mind. Dale Johnson, the president of ACBC, writes this. There's a term that's floating in our culture right now called everyday paranoia. We are bombarded with all kinds of scary news, things we read online, things we see on television. We know the government has been keeping track of us. Who knows what other governments are doing? It's this idea that everyone is watching. And it does tend to make us more suspicious of other people. This is a bit of a problem because as Christians, he writes, the Bible says our default position as Christians 
unless we have reason to suspect people, is to actually believe the best about him, about them. Do you see how very different that is from this everyday paranoia? Our default position as Christians is actually to believe the best about people. Love hopes all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When we're suspicious, we believe the worst about people rather than the best. And it starts because typically there is jealousy or anger festering in our hearts. And as you look at chapter 18, you really can track the progression of Saul's suspicion from first there's anger and there's jealousy through then ranting and attempted murder, which we'll see just in a moment, to more fear and dread and more fear and enmity between him and David. And really what this is clearly helping us see is that it grabbed hold of his life. When, when sin is just festering inside of us, it consumes our thoughts. And if it is not dealt with, it will eventually lead to either things coming out of our mouths or things that we do with our hands. Sin, like envy, cherished in the heart, will eventually express itself through the mouth and hands. And we see this playing out in Saul's life. And so looking at this, this tracking of Saul's suspicion, we see as, as the, the text moves, Saul's heart burns so bitterly that it really took only a single day, as you look at the passage, uh, for his anger to vent itself towards David physically. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and David, I'm sorry, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But we see that David evaded the, the throwing of the spear twice. And then what we see happen as the text continues is that Saul then plots other ways in which to destroy his enemy. The Lord's anointed is, is experiencing from the king hatred coming from several different fronts or in different ways. And so to kind of keep moving through this passage, we're going to look at two plans that Saul makes for David in order for, okay, me throwing the spear at him, me physically killing him did not work. So now I'm going to look towards my greater enemy, the Philistines, and I'm going to actually seek ways in which I can put David in harm's way by sending him out where there's a great chance that he will, he will, he will be defeated or, or slain by, by the Philistines and, instead of myself. Because in verses 12 through 16, we see this progression of love between the people for David and hate that Saul has towards David. And the way that that's described to us is the description of people's faces or in the sight of people. So in verses 12 through 16, there is this reality that when David is in front of or in the face of the people, whether that's uh, going out or coming in, the love of David grows. And the more that he is in Saul's presence, in his face, the more his hatred towards David grows. And so we see this reaction by Saul like a demotion. 
He wants to just get David out of his presence and makes him commander of thousands. And in a sense, it's, it's this driving out of his presence that Saul is up to. But looking at his plans um, that, that really actually backfire, but his plans to make David his son-in-law is his way of trying to get rid of his enemy. The first plot is that he would have his eldest daughter, Mirab, as his wife. And so there is incentive for David here to take on dangerous military responsibilities in hopes, Saul thinks, that the Philistines will kill him. Let, let them do the dirty work. Saul's fear of David, we just have to make note of this, is so twisted at this point that he is now actually hoping, since David would be the leading guy in the army, he's now hoping that the Philistines would, would achieve a victory. That's, that's how thwarted this is, the sin that's been festering in him. It's so twisted his, his thinking that he now longs at this point to see the true enemy, the Philistines, have victory over his own. He offers his, his daughter, and what we find here is David's response is that I'm not worthy to be the son-in-law of a king from where I come from. And it's a very similar response that Saul had several chapters back when he was made known that he would be the Lord's anointed or the, the one who would be the king. But David is saying, no, I'm not worthy of this. And what we see kind of unfold is time kind of expired and Merib is given to another. So then Saul kind of ramps it back up and he sees that his other daughter, Michal, loves David, and so he thinks, okay, maybe this time it's going to work. And so we see a larger chunk of scripture, verses 20 through 29, where he now tries to convince David once again, I really want you to be my son-in-law. And again, we see the motive laid out very clearly in the passage. It is not to reward David for slaying the giant. You remember the king would enrich the man who, enslay, who slays Goliath. He would give him his daughter he would, he would give him the blessing of his family no longer having to pay taxes. All of the, the blessings, we, we don't really see that come here in this chapter. It's more like, if you do this for me, David, then I will give you my daughter. And in this case, David, after he's got some back and forth with Saul's servants, sees that, okay, there's not going to be a bride's price to be paid. Really, all I need to do is go and, and slay 100 Philistines and then Saul will gladly give me his daughter's hand. Now, it's really amazing. Saul's motive and intent is for David to experience death on the battlefield. He's thinking if he accepts this offer, surely when he goes to kill 100 Philistines, he will meet the end of his life. And all the while, David's thinking this is a great situation. I now can go forward with a clear conscience and accept, gladly accept, the offer of being a son-in-law by accomplishing what he has called me to accomplish. And so what ends up happening is David ends up slaying 200 Philistines, well surpassing, going that extra mile, and receiving Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. What I also want us to note is that not only is Saul jealous and angry, he is afraid and this fear grows throughout the chapter. We read, he's afraid of David because the Lord was with David, 
but he had departed from Saul. And because Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Not only that, even after his daughter's hand was given to David in marriage, to see how his daughter loved David, Saul becomes, became still even more afraid, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. So very clearly, this picture being painted here, hopefully, is that there are, there are many who receive the Lord's anointed and love him, and there are those who resist the Lord's anointed and hate him. You know, just to kind of help see this picture, David seems to not realize that really what Saul is up to is planning a funeral for David and not a marriage this whole time. And David's going forward thinking, I actually get to have the opportunity to be the king's son-in-law. And while all this is happening, I, I want us to think about this question for a moment. Have you ever stopped to ponder the ways in which the Lord has protected you without you at the moment even being aware of it? I think this is a helpful exercise for believers. In this case, it seems like David is going through all of these experiences, not really fully grasping the hatred that King Saul has for him and his ill intent. Now, having spears thrown at your face may clue you into that, but a lot of the other experiences, it does seem like the hand of God obviously is clearly upon David, but he may not fully grasp this protection that he has through all of these situations. And God's favor is clearly upon him, and what we also see is there's much danger that Saul is seeking to place upon him as well. And David, in the midst of all this, maybe later in his life, I'm sure when penning some of the, the Psalms inspired by the Spirit, recognizes the Lord's hand was upon me. The Lord's protection was on me even when I was not even aware of it. The quiet protection of the Lord is the heritage of others among his servants as well. And I think God is honored and glorified when we spend time thinking back, reflecting upon his goodness towards us, even when we were completely unaware that his hand of protection was on us, and actually voicing that, giving praise to God, recognition of his sovereign hand upon us in protecting us in moments when we desperately needed it but didn't know it. He is so good and gracious towards his people. So what we see very clearly in this chapter is that Saul has adopted a very, um, an opposite, very opposite stance towards David, the anointed of the Lord, from those who loved him, Jonathan, Michael, and the people. There was much love for the Lord's anointed and there was much hate. And how I want to kind of bring this uh, to a close is with the reality that there is, there's no neutrality with the Lord's anointed. As we see in this chapter, I think we can make the jump. Some may think this is a, a large leap, but I don't. When we look at the Lord, the Lord Jesus, he is the Lord's anointed. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has been called by God, sent by God to redeem a people for himself, to be King of kings and Lord of lords, 
and really there is no neutrality in your positioning or view of the Lord's anointed. So when we understand that Jesus is the Lord's anointed, the question is, is it possible to be neutral? Neutrality for most, if you think about interacting with those who aren't quite sure about Christianity, neutrality would be the preferred position. It's really an easy option to, 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 to state, at least. Some would say, no, I'm not a believer, but neither would I describe myself as an unbeliever. I'm not against Christianity, but neither am I enthusiastically for it. I'm not convinced that it is true, but neither could I say that I know that it's untrue. And I want to I kind of ride this line of neutrality. I want to be neutral. And I, I, I think it's important for us to just state clearly that neutrality is not an option. Jesus himself is the one who said, whoever is not with me is against me. He also said, for the one who is not against us is for us. A very helpful, familiar passage from C.S. Lewis um, comes from his book, The Case for Christianity. And he penned these words. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus Christ. Here's what people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can choose. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he is a liar or a lunatic. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And we must affirm C.S. Lewis's words saying, these are powerful, true words. And so, in our passage, as David, as, as you read through this chapter, David was greatly honored. That is clear and that is true. He went from triumph to triumph. So it must be with the Lord Jesus, the Lord's anointed. Here from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so uh, an important question to answer this morning for each of us. Are you a loyal, loving follower of the Lord's anointed or not? To love him. So there's either a love for the Lord's anointed or a hate. To love him is to obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. To love him is to worship him. 
To love him is to cast yourself upon his grace and mercy for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. Hear again from the Lord Jesus, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let us pray. Father, we this morning confess that we are self-seekers and we are self-pleasers. Our capacity for joy is so corrupted when we find ourselves jealous and angry over others whose gifts may surpass our own, and it really rips us from the opportunity, rips from us the opportunity to to experience the love that Jonathan had for David. Father, help us to mortify this sinful attitude. Help us to have a trust in you like Jonathan had that that allowed him to, to display that type of love in his life for David, to love others in such a way that we can rejoice over their achievements over their victories, and we would be known, marked as a people who are so happy to to bless others with our words and our deeds. Father, help us that we would be more concerned for your kingdom than our own little kingdom. And we ask the Holy Spirit this morning to apply these truths to our hearts, that we may be found loyal, loving followers of the Lord's anointed. And we pray this in his name. Amen.